writer of the Gospel of Luke, we believe, was a physician named Luke. And we believe he wrote a part two to that story. Part two, the Acts of the Apostles. What happens after the resurrection? In the prologue, chapter one, we hear this. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This is what you have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? It is not for you to know the times or period that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go up into heaven. The, the word, word of, of the Lord. Lord. Thanks be to God. Holy One, you have ascended in glory, and yet you are always with us. Bless us this day as we remember your word, as we bring it into our hearts, and learn how to live the ascension. Amen. Pastor Delmer Chilton is one of my favorite storyteller pastors. He grew up in the hills of North Carolina. And he rightfully asks about this passage, about the 40 days in between Jesus' resurrection and the ascension we celebrate today. He said, if Jesus was resurrected, and if Jesus could flit about here and there and disappearing at will, as if he had Scotty from Star Trek sort of beaming him, whenever he felt like, to a new place? Why would he pull the somewhat theatrical stunt of floating off into heaven, like the wizard taking leave of Oz in the balloon? Why didn't he just say goodbye and go? There are two answers to that question, but one belongs to the ancient world and needs to be understood before we can learn how to react to the ascension of Christ. In the ancient world, if Jesus didn't go up, something was broken and failed about the whole Jesus project. And the whole thing would have been worthless. See, in Leviticus, there's a process for how you sacrifice animals. It's not very much unlike other processes of other ancient Near Eastern religions in Mesopotamia. But the one thing that sort of undergirds all of them 
is a theology of God that says God is an angry, wrathful God. The Bible Project says it's been translated something like this. God is holy and perfect. You're not. That sin God abhors, and so you're a sinner. God is angry at you and hates you and has to kill you. But God is also merciful. So he'll let you bring an animal, and if you have that animal killed instead of you, then you're okay. And then in the new system, we bring in Jesus. And Jesus comes to be the one killed by God instead of me. Whew. Jesus rescues us from God, so now we can go forever to the happy place instead of the other place, where the angry God would have sent us other words. Additionally, you must know that in the ancient world, the life force of an animal was thought to be in its blood, and then the smoke that went up to God during a sacrifice. So God won't take God's uh, presence from us. But God would be angry if that smoke didn't come up. God would be angry if we didn't sprinkle the blood through the temple. And God would then allow other armies to attack you. So there's a real sense in these sacrifices that you are bringing God into your community, your people, to protect you from the Babylonians or the Romans or whatever empire was in charge in that decade. But none of that mattered unless the smoke goes up. See, like I said, the smoke is supposed to include the life force of the animal, and the ascent of that smoke is supposed to mean that that life of that animal is received by God as a sign of repentance by the humans down on earth, and that God, therefore, won't take out any kind of wrathful anger on the world through, say, a massive flood or other catastrophic events. Most of a most of us grew up in American Christianity hearing this message. God is angry. We deserve hell. Jesus goes up there instead of the animals and says, it's okay, you don't have to send that human to hell. You can bring him up to heaven. And that's a story that we're taught. It's a story that worked for the ancient world. They lived in a metaphorical system built on animal sacrifice. They had no other way of understanding God. So that's why that system is there in the Bible. It's hard to resonate with us, isn't it? It was, it was hard even for folks in the fourth century as Christianity moved its center of gravity from Jerusalem into parts of the Mediterranean, the Greco-Roman world. We start to see theologians begin to understand the ascension of God in a different way. And they found that answer in the biblical text. John Chrysostom wrote that in the resurrection, the disciples saw the end, but not the beginning. In the ascension, they saw the beginning, but not the end. This is to say, with the resurrection, the disciples thought it was the end of the world as they knew it. They didn't see a forward path from there. Their teacher, their beloved leader was gone. How could they move forward after that. But then Jesus comes back. Jesus comes back, John Chrysostom says, in order to inaugurate the mission of God 
in their time. It's a new beginning. It's a new beginning there with Jesus in their presence. We know that this is a new beginning, not an end, for, because of a few signs were given in Acts. First, Acts tells us that it was 40 days that Jesus was with the disciples in the post-resurrection form. 40. Where do we remember that number 40 from? Can anybody shout out the last time in the Bible they remember the number 40 appearing? Jesus, 40 days in the desert. That's right. We have Jesus. <laughs> she had the other answer, too. Uh, we have Jesus, 40 days in the desert, where he's tempted by the, the evil one. And so we're remembering that number 40 there. But then we also have the 40 days of walking in the wilderness with Moses. So we would have heard that 40 number, and we would have remembered wilderness. And if you remember Pastor Molly's sermon from last week, the wilderness is a space of transformation, a liminal space, a space where you are taken from one end of knowledge and sense of self to the other. And so Acts tells us then those 40 days Jesus is with them, they were hearing the gospel of the kingdom of God. So whatever happened to those disciples, in 40 days, they went from one sense of who God was and what God expected them to do in the world to something very different. Something having to do with the kingdom of God. That gospel that we proclaim in this church every Sunday. So we remember those 40 days, and we also remember who the 40 days are attached to. One of them is Moses. Remember that Moses led the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years until bringing them to the promised land. And although it's not in our Bible, most people at that time would have known the story of the life of Moses, an apocryphal book that depicts Moses being ascended into heaven. Not unlike the picture of Jesus we have in Acts 1. And while Moses is going up, he's prophesying about the way God wants people to act in the world. So we have Moses ascending, and people would have caught on to that when they heard about Jesus' ascension. We also have the story of Elijah, which probably would have been the easier connection for folks. Because in Elijah, it's the second Kings, it says that Elijah ascended to heaven in a whirlwind. We're also told that these ascensions needed to happen in order and here's where it gets down to us and what we're supposed to do about the ascension. In order that the successors could move forward with their mission from God. See, Moses had to be, in this apocryphal story, ascended so that Joshua could come forth into his own. After those 40 years of transformation in the wilderness, that Joshua could rise up and lead the people of Israel into the promised land. Elijah is training this protege, Elisha. I always wish they had their names slightly different, so the story would be a little easier to remember. But Elijah is training Elisha, and Elisha has the gall to ask his master, Elijah, for a double portion of the Spirit. Remember, at Pentecost, we're going to see the Spirit coming down, and that gift coming him. But Elisha asks for the double portion of the Spirit, and Elijah gives it to him and reminds him of it as Elijah goes up, ascends to God in a whirlwind. My friends, this is what Luke is all about at the beginning of Acts. 
He isn't trying to tell us how a wrathful God is finally satisfied. He is telling us that Jesus is ascended. Jesus is there with God at the right hand of the Father, praying for us, advocating on our behalf, living among us in a way that we don't understand, sending us the gift of the Holy Spirit in a few weeks. But Luke is also reminding us there is a new mission involved. Those 40 days transformed us so that Jesus could go away so that we could be ready for what God is calling us to do in the world. We have now received our spiritual marching orders to carry on the ascended Jesus' work in the world. Delmer Chilton reminds us that Jesus couldn't just disappear another time. There had to be a scene bigger than that, not just to connect their memories to the other biblical figures. But he said if, he, if Jesus had just disappeared again, there would have been more Jesuses seen in Jerusalem than Elvises seen in Las Vegas. He said it's difficult to get busy with the important business of loving the Christ your neighbor if you're constantly looking out for the physical Jesus at Burger King. We see the movement of God in this passage, and as another commentator points out, we see the movement of Jesus from God to the world and back to God. But it's not just something that God can do. In this coming and going, the membrane between heaven and earth is eternally altered. Now, the promise of coming and going is in a new and exciting way of movement for all of us. The beginnings of a thoroughfare have been outlined, and Jesus is the first to travel it with the ascension. But the promise of the ascension is that many more, that we will travel it in the days of head because of those same awkward, gaping disciples will be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they have now been shown the way. My friends, so often we are those awkward disciples. Remember how our story ends? They're looking up. Mouths wide, eyes wide open, gaping. Isn't that how we too often are? Looking for the next miraculous sign, an earthquake, a volcano, something to tell us that God is in charge around here, that there's something big going on. Jesus reminds us in the ascension that it's our turn. We're told in the story that there were two men in white robes that showed up with a message for the apostles. When is the last time we remember two men in white robes showing up around Jesus? The tomb. Remember, Jesus is resurrected. The tomb is rolled away. And depending on the story, the disciples or Mary show up in the tomb and there's men in white robes saying, what are you doing here? Are you looking for a sign for a miracle? It's time to get moving. God's gift is coming to you. Are you getting ready for it? And so that's the message for us today, my friends. We know that Pentecost is coming. We know that the Holy Spirit is coming to empower us, to sustain us, to give us the gift of life to give us the strength we need to go out into the world and proclaim the good news of hope and justice. So how do we prepare our hearts 
for Pentecost? Will this person of the Trinity come down and find us? Eyes open, jaws slacked, waiting for something big to show up? Or will we remember the gospel of the 40 days? Be transformed in that liminal time. And work alongside the cosmic Christ, advocating on earth as he does in heaven for the poor, for the oppressed. Chilton says that every time he reads a story, he remembers being 12 years old and doing or not doing his chores out on the farm. He says, I can hear my father come around the corner of the barn or see him suddenly appear beside me in the field. He would scowl and look disappointed and say, what are you doing just standing here? Get busy. We got a farm to run. But the good news for us this day, my friends, that God is not scowling at us. That Jesus' open arms remind us, come, join me. There is work to be done. There's a world full of hurting people who need to hear and feel the love I have to give. Will you take part? What will you do about it? Amen.